Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up today? Today we have a special guest. We have a guy named Rintu Basu. And Rintu Basu is the best-selling author of the Persuasion Skills Black Book. And he's a former police officer in the United Kingdom. And we're here today with Rintu. He's here to talk with us today about his experience with policing methods, with policy, and how that all ties in with persuasion and influence. So this is really going to be a very exciting conversation. Uh, so welcome, Rintu. Hi. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Um, it's a great to be here with you. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started in the world of linguistic psychology and persuasion techniques? Sure. Yeah. So the thing about me, actually, behind all of this is that I've got a real desire to learn things. You know, I'm very, very good at accelerated learning, and I've spent an awful lot of my time studying those sorts of things. Now, if you follow the extension from that, you wind up in this situation about learning about trance and hypnosis and meditation, altered states of consciousness. Uh, I'm sure you guys are aware of the fact that your memory, for example, is very state-dependent. So that was me um, through, uh, through school and college and university and doing, uh, getting further and further into those sorts of things. Now, from there, popped out of university... Couldn't really work out what I wanted to do with my life, so I became a musician, um, and I stopped that once my father... Well, unemployed was was the tag my father put on it, but, <laughs> but I did make some money as a, as a musician. Then I was bit, then my degrees in mechanical engineering, so I became a mechanical engineer for a while and did all of these sorts of things. I came to this point where I suddenly realized that actually what I really want to do is make a difference to people's lives. And I couldn't think of a bigger difference that I could make to anyone's life but arrest them. So that sold me on the idea of becoming a police officer. The real reason I joined the police was because I actually genuinely wanted to make a difference. Um, And I'd been sold on this thing from the police about the police being policing by consent rather than uh, policing by force. Uh, What that kind kind of meant to me was actually what you want are police officers that are different. You know, you want police officers that are representative of your society actually doing the policing and working with communities to build those kind of links. I was sold on that idea, and that's kind of why why I joined. Now, here's the persuasion element in it. This is really what happened to me. Um, it was a quite an impressive kind of switch of thinking. So I'd done all this accelerated learning stuff, and I got 
heavily into trance and hypnosis and, and those sorts of things. And I kind of figured it in my own head that all of this stuff was just persuasion. It's all just about persuading your mind to work the way that you want it to. It's all just about getting to a point where uh, you can convince yourself to do whatever it is that you need to do. You, you can change your beliefs and you can do all sorts of fantastic stuff like that. The thought that occurred to me was, I wonder if I could do that with other people. In fact, to the very extreme where I can do it with people where it might not necessarily be in their best interests. Uh, and take it the right way. When I'm talking about um, the idea of policing, uh, I'm talking about police officers doing the best in the most global in the most global sense. It's best for the community that, say, this particular person is uh, arrested and invest investigated for a particular crime and, uh, and that sort of stuff. But for that individual, getting arrested and prosecuted for a crime isn't necessarily in their best interest or their perceived best interest. I, I suspect in a lot of cases... It's good for society, but it may not be good for them. So I started down this line of, well, I know how to change beliefs. I know how to get people to um, come along in a direction that I, you know, that I'm going to negotiate with them. Whenever I've whenever I've done that, it has always been in that person's favour. You know, I'm uh, I, I wouldn't try and manipulate people to do things that isn't in their interest. But I may well actually try and persuade them to do things that I think are in their in their best interest. Now I've got to a situation where I'm looking at how do I convince someone, and this was genuinely my thinking at the time, was how do I convince someone to put on a pair of um, handcuffs, um, willingly climb into the back of the van, go to the police station, get investigated for a crime, and then write me a testimonial for how good the experience was. So... <laughs> that was kind of my um, uh, the thing that I really wanted to to practice and play and uh, and do within police service. Um, I eventually got so good at that sort of stuff that uh, I went into training and started training police officers to do uh, to do those sorts of things. Uh, we worked at all sorts of interesting levels about uh, methodology and implement uh, implementation of all of that sort of thing. The and somewhere in all of this, I suddenly realized that actually I was way better a trainer than I ever was a police officer. So it's best, you know, that I actually leave the police and start off on my own, you know. So that's where I eventually ended up. Wow. Um, the applications for this, uh, I, let me give you some kind of idea of, what, of where, this is, where this has gone for me. You see, like... Um, most people that come into linguistics or persuasion and come in from either this kind of uh, therapy or coaching or training, um, those kind of directions, and that's that's brilliant. But it also restricts you to this kind of range of things that you're doing with people that's that's kind of negotiated, that's in you know in their own interests. Uh, that's great, and I'm, I'd never want to take away the kind of uh, the skills that people have got in there. But due to my the dint of my experience, what I've actually done is go in the opposite direction and go: How do you get people to do things when it's not in their best interest? Now, again, um, 
there is very little that I, I would actually want to do with that in terms of, uh, you know, the real world in terms of coaching or training and that sort of stuff. But there are, but there are tools and techniques that I've kind of learned out of those sets of circumstances that I could use in a more, um, if you like, ecological way now. But certainly they've come. What are some examples of these techniques that um, you might uh, use to get people to take action that might not be in their own best interest? Ah, <laughs> that's a, uh, it's a great question. I ought to just be able to go, here's a simple answer to several of those, but I think it might be more useful to see this from a deeper perspective. Let me explain what, what, where I'm going with this and what, what's actually happening. Is that um, I, I find a lot of people in persuasion end up looking for swift little techniques or tools or a language pattern or something like that that will give them some uh, a little edge. That's great, but invariably most of those things aren't particularly powerful. Uh, I don't know whether you've met any NLP practitioners who get really keen on language and they study it and they come straight off their practitioner course and the first thing you get from them is just word salad. you know. And they spend, <laughs> they spend the next, what, half dozen weeks just talking complete nonsense at people and everyone just looks at them going why are you talking funny you know <laughs> um yeah they've learned the techniques but they miss the intention behind the techniques and all of the things that need to be there to make the techniques work yes absolutely so here's here's the absolute um the the nub of this is that you need to step a level up to understand what's going on. Intention's a great thing. I would suggest that in all of this, the um, there's two things that, that, that really work in, in these kind of areas, and that's framing. That's probably the biggest issue here. So let me give you this in straightforward policing terms, okay? Police officers wear uniforms. They wear uniforms for a particular reason. Um, and that's not just to be seen, but to be seen as a figure of authority. So, just as an example, imagine yourself walking down the street and a complete stranger comes up to you and says, turn out your pockets, I want to have a look at what you've got on you. Okay? The chances are you're not going to comply with anything in, uh, along those lines. Mm -hmm. But if that person was wearing a, a uniform, a police officer's uniform, and asked the same things, you may grumble, you may complain, but generally most people would just comply with the request. And that's because the uniform has a frame around it. Let me suggest that that uniform makes a whole lot of presuppositions. It, it, it fills your head with all sorts of stuff in the same way as it actually does to the police officers uh, as well. You want to see it as a system. So tell me this, if uh, and just to let you know, I still do this. I'm an ex-police officer. I know what's going on. And when I'm driving down the road and the police car pulls out behind me, the first thing I do is check my speed. Then I worry about my tire tread. Then I wonder whether I've jumped a red light. And then, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, and tell me that most people don't do that. You know, I used to, as a police officer, when you pull out behind people, you know when they've seen you. Because all of a sudden the brakes go on and they swerve a little bit. You know, that's when they first noticed you because they're going through in their head, you know, what on earth might they have done wrong? Uh, that's fairly typical. Police officers even do that. So what I'm suggesting to you is that just seeing someone in that uniform, you get all these presuppositions and it alters the way that you, th that you act and the way that you think. Okay. Um, let me give you uh, 
a good example of, of how I've used this in the past. Um, if you take that situation, one of the things that I used to want to do with baby police officers is to get them the idea that there are manifestations of power. The fact that when they wear that uniform, people will, will act with them differently than if they didn't know that they were police officers. And you have to be very, very careful about how you deal with them because you can, without thinking about it, breed resentment and that sort of stuff. Um, so I call this a kind of like the a, a frame of authority over things. You don't need a uniform to, to put it on. What you what you need is to is to assume that you have authority and work the situation so that it so that both you and the people that you're interacting with feel it. So there's this class of police officers. There's sixteen of them in the room. They're all baby police officers, and they're struggling with the idea of this response to dominance. Basically, the trainer that was in the room was struggling to get over the point that people will comply but not actually agree with what a police officer is doing because they're afraid of the uniform or they've been trained to respect authority and that sort of stuff. So what I actually did with these police officers, they didn't know who I was. Um, they'd seen me a couple of times on the training center, but they didn't really know who I was. And I habitually didn't wear a uniform. Um, so this one particular day, uh, I've dressed up in a suit, I, I, you know, power dressed, and I've arranged this with the trainer, so he's going to be, uh, he's uh, late getting into the class. I've gone in uh, a few minutes before him. I'd actually waited outside the, outside the classroom until they started talking to each other and they were starting to make, make some noise. So I walked in without introducing myself. I had a big pop at them about the, the amount of noise that they're doing. Um, so this has already put them on the back foot. Um, because they don't know who I am, I've not introduced myself. We're talking about a hierarchy and a bureaucratic organisation where rank is very important, and they simply do not know what rank I might be. Um, from there, it was it, it was absolutely easy. All I, what I did was get them to grab all their uh, their coats, their helmets, the gloves. It's a bright, hot, sunny day outside, um, and I've dragged them out. As soon as any of them started questioning me about, you know, what they might be, what they might be doing, uh, I've turned around to them and said, "Well, you're going to find out." So I've taken them all outside, and I've found a tree, and I've got them all standing in a circle around it, holding hands, chanting "Om" at the tree, and I've got them doing that. For, <laughs> I've got them doing that for about five minutes until eventually one of them plucked up enough courage to say. Why are we doing this? At which point I told them that actually this is just all responses to authority. You have no idea of who I am or what I could be. I may well even be the janitor, for all you know. <laughs> and look where I've got you. Um, so uh, in that kind of circumstances, the whole bunch of frames that I've put uh, that are in place. Uh, a lot of them have nothing to do with me. You know, they're on a police training centre. They're in a hierarchical, bureaucratic organisation. Uh, but uh, you can use that to play. So, if I translate that back to say more like normal life, here's one of the biggest places you can use something like that, and that's just about rapport. So, 
let me give you this idea about uh, about rapport. Um, what I want to suggest, uh, and I'm talking about rapport in its most general kind of flaccid perspective. Uh, you're always going to do better with people if they like you, you know, if you get on with them and, uh, and such like. So um, NLP does all this matching and mirroring thing. You can make that a lot more sophisticated and a lot more powerful by... Uh, you know, stepping into the other person, seeing it from their perspective and all those sorts of things. It's really powerful techniques. The problem that I see with them is that you don't often get the opportunity to do that as a process um, in in difficult situations. So say, for example... And real, real quickly yeah. before you go on, could we explain sort of mirroring and matching for the listeners? The whole idea is that people like people that are like themselves. So... What tends to happen is you will you will like people that have similar things to you, and that that would start with values, beliefs, and background, tastes in music, you know, the films that you like. If you think about all your closest friends, you will have a, a, a lot of commonality. You can take that even further from a psychological perspective. When you are getting on with people, you will have a tendency to match and mirror everything from voice tone. Uh, to volume, to behaviours, um, to uh, what you'll find is that, that you wind up in some kind of synchronicity with them. The that's the general perspective. There's a, a part of the NLP community that that go around matching and mirroring people as a route to building rapport. There's a couple of issues around that for me. Um, firstly, is that you. If you are going to match and mirror people's body language, then you need to do it with a lot of care because mimicking wouldn't create rapport. Um, and the way I see this matching and mirroring and following people's behavior, it's more of a rapport indicator than a rapport creator. So what I'm going to suggest is that if you have nothing else, then it's a good way to go. But personally, I'm, I much prefer the idea of having uh, a faster, quicker way uh, directly into the guts of uh, making friends with people. Uh, let, um, and I'm just going to explain a, a different kind of technique to do that that ties into the, the whole policing thing. You see, one of the things that, that I had a problem with in the police is that actually most of my regular customers aren't particularly friendly. And the last person they want to be friends with is you. If that makes sense. So I kind of wanted to be able to get myself into a position where I've got real solid, strong rapport with them, even though they don't want to be my friend. Um, so the way, the way that works, uh, I'm, I, I need to subtly change the, the definition that I've got here for rapport for a minute. I like to think of rapport not so much as being friends, but about uh, how you develop responsiveness. So when people are responding to each other, I tend to, that's what I call rapport. So, for example, uh, if if you've ever been in a stand or, or seen, uh, preferably if you think back to a time where you've seen a stand-up spit-in-your-face argument, you know where two people have gone toe-to-toe -to -toe and they're shouting at each other. If you if you notice that situation, you'll see that they that they are matching. And mirroring each other quite strongly you know the volume goes up mm. together and they they move in synchronicity 
it's like they've shut off the rest of the world and the only system that's in, that's involved is the two of them that are arguing with each other. Do you get that? Right, they're in a very tight rapport right there. Yes, absolutely. So that to me is a very, is very, very strong rapport. Uh, and it's about responsiveness. So say, for example, in that particular set of circumstances, if you're finding, if you're finding yourself in a position where you're shouting with someone else, the trick to it is to continue shouting at them, but instead of shouting over them, you shout under them. So you're actually de-escalating the volume, even though you are still shouting. And what you also do with that is deflect. So one of my most favorites used to be, I, I used to shout at them something along the lines of, uh, you know, I want to help. I want to help you, and I want to get things done. But for us to be able to do that, you need to calm down enough to tell me what the problem is. You see how I'm doing that? Mm-hmm. And, and incidentally, right in the middle of that, is the, the calm down is a direct embedded command, the way that I'm, you know, uh, delineating that. In yeah, you, you let them know what was important. So this, this would be something that you would say to a person who was in a policing situation, kind of freaking out on you or acting erratic emotionally. Yeah. You would frame it for them in a way of, hey, I really want to be able to help. This is what's what's important. But in order for that to happen, this is what needs to happen with your behavior. Yeah. So that's a very uh, and that, that I, I I use that over and over again in any kind of uh, professional argument kind of situation. I, I tend to say professional arguments because when I'm arguing from a personal perspective, I can never get anything to work. There's a golden <laughs> rule in all of this: is that you know when your emotions come in, your uh, uh, or at least when my emotions come in, my skills just go out the window. But um, you, you know, uh, in a professional environment, I can get that to work, what, 80%, 90% of the time? That's another point that needs to be said here. Um, in the real world, you don't win every battle. You know, uh, sometimes this stuff just fails spectacularly. Um, and there's whole, uh, because you can't control all of the variables. Um you know, you don't know what's going on in people's lives. Uh, you don't know what's happened before, what's happened afterwards. Uh, there are frames and beliefs that are stuck with people that, um, you know, that were the best will in the world you're not going to overcome. Um, but the way I figure most of this stuff uh, and how I've always looked at the, this persuasion end, if I can get it to work just you know, even 20% of the time, that's 20% better results than I was getting. Yeah. Right. And so, so my question here is, you know, we talked quite a bit here about sort of the tactics that, you know, police use or could use to reframe things for the people being policed. What are sort of the framings and, um, uh, that are being applied to the police man, to the police themselves that sort of create a behavior, uh, of them this is a oh um that's a uh a, a wide wide question it's not a very easy one to answer either um if if we start with the the idea that um the police in the uk uh are strongly told that they police by consent that is the rhetoric that the police use so the police that and you need to see all of these things for 
the generalities that they that they are. You know, not all police officers will uh, subscribe to this or believe this. In fact, uh, and what, what is that? Could you just break that down um, for some of our listeners who might be more uh, from the U.S. point of view? What does that mean? Police policing by consent. What is what is the maxim or the idea that's subscribed to? Okay, it it comes down to the police are a service, and we're there to help and serve the public. Okay. So we 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 are not enforcement officials. We are. I mean, that is actually uh, you know the police are that is part of their role. But actually, the widest part of the role is about helping and supporting uh, our communities. So, um, if you like, it's the difference between uh, a service, a public service, and a law enforcement agency. So, say, for example, one of the biggest problems that has always happened with police officers is um, policing road traffic offences. So, we're talking about little minor offences like... um, uh, Well, I say they're minor. I mean, they can be quite dangerous, but things like... um, uh, the t- your tire tread, or whether you've got water in your window washers, or a brake light out, and these sorts of things. Traditionally, police officers are, have always dealt with the, with with those sorts of things, and they give out fines and whatever else. But what they find is that it causes so much uh, resentment with the police that they're better off actually leaving all of that stuff to council officers rather than police officers, because it it's, it feels more like an enforcement issue than a policing issue. Does that sort of make sense? So it's a little bit of the difference between, say, like a fireman and the military. Yes, yeah, yeah. That would, uh, that would actually be a, um, uh, a really good e- example. You, you know, um, the police in the UK, uh, it's, it, we're steadily getting closer and closer to it, but we're still not routinely armed in, in the UK. So police officers, well, certainly in my day, I used to, you know, get thrown out on the streets with uh, the only thing I had armed, uh, that I was armed with was a terrifyingly small piece of wood called a truncheon. And even then we had special hidden pockets to hide them in so people wouldn't, you know, that we wouldn't come across too aggressive, you know. Um, the police, uh, UK police officers these days, um, they've got extendable batons and um, uh, pepper spray Oh, it's a pepper spray. Well, they they have a, uh, they have some non-lethal weapons, you know, like a uh, like a spray uh, uh, of some sort. Um, so, and they are starting to use tasers and stuff. But actually, they're still not routinely armed uh, armed with proper firearms, um, and that's built from that kind of culture. There is a flip side to this, if I'm if I might, if I compare the two the two countries um, in the UK. It is rare to find people armed. And therefore, the way the police officers will approach the public um, is different to, say, like in the US, where the police officer's safety is quite quite an issue. So one of the things that I've noticed... um, Actually, can I tell you the story first, and then I'll go back and explain some of the... Some of the things that I'm seeing happening in in America in terms of policing. Sure. Uh, So... This is uh, something that I, that I did as a trainer. Uh, I, I mean, I say I did, we did. We, we were experimenting on all, uh, on all sorts of things. And one of the experiments we did was taking a, a, 
a class of baby police officers. They've just learned to do stop search. They're just, uh, and there's several bits of it about stopping and searching people. They need to know the law that they use, and then they need to know practically how do they get those get certain things across to the member of public that they're talking to. And then they need to know how to do it physically. They need to know how to search someone safely, how to talk them down and all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot to this stop search thing. Anyway, so we'd taken half the class and we'd given them a briefing uh, a few days earlier. And it was about Somalia. And uh, because they were in uh, a war-torn situation, uh, lots of refugees. We told them that basically anyone from Somalia that was in the UK has more than likely seen death several times and on an upfront, very personal level. As a result of that, lots of people in Somalia will carry knives and that they don't show the normal aggressive responses. Normally when someone is getting, uh, is thinking about a fight or, you know, particularly if it's a serious issue like a knife or something, they escalate. You can see it in their body language, you can see it in the way they talk and what they're doing. So you've got, if you know what to look for, uh, you've got an inside track on, on how that is escalating. What we told them is that, that Somalians actually don't, don't do any of that. What they do is they, they jump from being cool, calm and placid to stab you in the throat with a knife and then go back to being cool, calm and placid without ever raising a heartbeat. That's what we told them. It, it, it's close to true, but it is a bit overstated and a bit serious. Yeah. So we've got half a class that, had, that were framed with that several days earlier, and we've got half a class that haven't. They're given a, a scenario where um, they have to search one of our actors. Okay, The actor is playing, uh, and we tell them this in the briefing, uh, there's been a robbery that's happened around the corner, someone's used a knife, uh, the person that's standing at this bus stop, which is our actor, uh, fits the subject, and it looks Somali. That's all we did. Now, the interesting thing is that the half of the class that haven't been primed um, treat that stop search wildly differently to the guys that think that this is a dangerous situation um, because we've primed them that way. Now, um, uh, and, and it is very, very seriously different. So the guys that, that, that don't have any preconception of what's going on will go in and they will they will keep the person calm, they will do the stop search. The whole scenario is based on the, based on the fact that it's not the right guy, he doesn't have a knife, they don't find anything, and then they um, you know fill in the paperwork and let him go. Um, so that, that, that happened uh, almost routinely with the half the class that, that weren't primed. The ones that were primed, 60-70% um, of them end up arresting the um, the actor, and they end up arresting him for a public order offence. In effect, what they what they've done is that they've wound him up, got him more and more angry, and then arrested him for for being angry at a police officer. So, uh, and again, this is a guy that we've set the scenario up so that he's not a he's not a robber. He's not had any connection with the crime that they were investigating. He doesn't have a knife. He's just a perfectly innocent, you know, member of the public. Uh, standing at a bus stop, um, and these police officers have gone in with a with a particular preframe in their heads, um, and uh, really tore up that situation. Now, here's the deal with this, um, and this is how I see one of the biggest 
differences between the UK and the US police and why some of the issues that are happening in the US in terms of policing are, are happening. Now, um, if you think about uh, the US, there's a lot more guns, there's a lot more antagonism with the police, there's a lot more uh, there's a lot more to do with, um, if you like, police officer safety. Uh, and I've, I mean, you can go and see, go and look on YouTube every now and again. And I've seen a number of situations which have, uh, because obviously YouTube, you, they don't, they don't ever post up the stuff that was good. They, you only get to see the the bad stuff, do you? That's right. You know, um, but some of the bad stuff I've seen has clearly been created by the police officer uh not necessarily through badness although uh, you know i could never know that but i can very obviously see that they're scared and that they're dealing with this situation from a perspective of fear and that means that you'll deal with it wildly differently um can i can i can i give you right um uh, let, let me just break that down real quick yeah, Brent, too, sure. if you don't mind um because i think this is a really important distinction this is a really important point that when we consider policy of policing when we consider policing methods you know certainly in the u.s there's been talk about that idea of community policing and policing within as a as a service to the community maybe not in the same way uh quite as it's described in the uk but this is what is uh, what goes on is that you have police officers who, let's say on a simple traffic stop, are told again and again and again, this is where many of your fellow um, police officers have been shot, they've been killed, they've been injured, they've been harmed. You don't want to be the next face up on that wall. And they're they're primed with this idea of if you don't treat this exactly right, if you don't have your guard up at all time, if you don't have your command presence happening at all time, if at all time you are not um, you know, ready to go for a fight or a confrontation, then you know, something bad is really going to happen. And what, of course, that does to a person is that it engages their fight-and-flight response. And you know, we have these different responses, fight, flight, and freeze, and usually police officers aren't going aren't gonna to freeze. And so what happens is you, you get this way in which police are being influenced, and they're being influenced to view every person as a potential threat. Well, what does that do to connection? What does that do to rapport? What does that do to their ability to just drop their guard and, you know, be calm and, you know, treat a an otherwise harmless situation as one that you know might just be harmless and is not you know something that could escalate but what happens is we see these things on YouTube and you know or that hit the news and it shows a situation where a police officer clearly overreacted and yet what happens is is that all of the uh, maybe the unions or the fellow uh, police people say, well, they had to react that way because it was in the moment and this was what was happening. And they just couldn't know for sure that it was a kid with a toy gun and not an actual gun. OK, or, you know, someone's 20 pound dog, you know, runs up 
to a police officer and just out of instinct, they go and they shoot the dog, mm-hmm. you know, without considering, you know, it's a 20 pound dog. They probably could could handle it, yeah. you know, but but they're trained, you know, in this way. And so I think a, a bigger discussion with this could be, okay, what are the ways that not only here in the U.S. it's often talked about as, you know, police need to change. You know, we need to have effective things, but the police need to change to be able to, to, be able to do that. I think a, a really good thread to follow with this is like, okay, how can we actually change our messaging or communication to the police, how it's being framed within their own minds and that it isn't the police versus the community. It isn't, you know, me versus the police, but it's actually how can we actually get them to the point where they're able to kind of lower their guard a little bit and have it framed a little bit differently in their minds? What do you consider about that? Um, I think you've, you've nailed the real issue in all of this. Uh, if you remember, I said that, that these are generalities and not every, not every police officer in, in the UK would be like that either. Uh, you know, I don't want to uh, portray a situation where, you know, I'm going UK good, US bad or anything like that. It's, it's never the case. The, the, the crux of the matter with, with this is um, it, it ends up being what kind of beliefs and ideals that you have in your own heads when you get in, uh, when you get into something, some, something like the police. So say, say for example, for me, uh, policing by consent and this kind, this kind of issue was what sold me on the police. And what, what I was always doing in terms of communities was looking at this in the, uh, in the widest perspective that I possibly could. So say for instance, um, where Reading used to have, uh, a large number of music festivals, so it still has a large number of music festivals, and all of the officers in Thames Valley get, end up being involved in them, you know, policing them. Um, now, you could go into all of that as a police officer looking for young kids all, all dealing drugs and desperately trying to, you know, uh, stop them having fun and, um, you know, just being nasty to them all. Uh, I kind of took uh, an approach that was more about actually joining in with the community. So take it the right way. I cannot not deal with the drugs. That's part of the job and all that sort of stuff. But on the same grounds, uh, I'm a musician. I love the music. Um, and why not get involved? Uh, so pretty much. So, so here you're sort of your frame of mind uh, going into the situation made you a better police officer because it was sort of that you you becoming part of the community and serving the community versus coming in to sort of crack down and 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 disrupt it um and i think this sort of makes me gives me another sort of thought here is that if we look at the differences between the uk and the us um and even broaden it out to a little bit of a wider um perspective i know um a lot of police in you know countries that were colonized um, you know, in Africa and, um, and America and, and the East, we end up with a lot of police forces that are very similar to sort of the authoritative, um, militaristic style, um, of policing mm-hmm. and, uh, in countries that were never colonized or, um, uh, in a lot of European countries, we end up with more of the, the police by consent 
And, um, you know, perhaps maybe that's how sort of America's broader culture around policing sort of started with the um, the, the nature of its of the, the, the genesis of the country and that, you know, we came from a colony where, uh, you know, sort of the uh, the British um, were imposing their rule yep. um, and it was much more militaristic, whereas, you know, that never happened in London. And they have a, a totally different perspective. Yes, I, I, I absolutely think there's there, there's something in that. What what we would be doing as the empire builders is actually law enforcement, and that's what your policing would become. So it's it's all about making sure people comply. Um, whereas what what we were doing in in the UK was very much more about. Uh, making sure people are supported. I mean, there's still compliance issues in all of that, but it's a different way of getting to them. So that was that's kind of been my my approach to this all the time. Is it's it's more a negotiation. It's more about um, allowing people. Let me put it in in my typical kind of linguistic way. I want to give you. As many opportunities as I can for you to be able to do exactly what I want you to do. That is kind of where I'm coming from in all of this. So you've heard of double binds, right? But maybe we should explain that for yeah. for some of the listeners here. Yeah, sure. I think this is fascinating. Yeah. So what I'm going to kind of suggest is that there's ways of giving people choices, but it doesn't matter which one they take; they will always come along and do what you want. So the most obvious one, it's an old style sales technique. If you turn around to someone at the point and say, uh, you know, as part of your sales process and say, uh, would you prefer the green one or the red one? That limits your choice to either the green one or the red one. So it, it takes out any other color and it takes out not buying it at all. Does that make sense? Or if you ask like a small child, do you want to clean your room now or after dinner? Absolutely. Yeah, that's... um. That's totally how it works. That's, that's complete double bind. So, what, so what would be a, a double bind that would typically be used with someone to get them to cooperate out out in the field when you're doing police work? <laughs> oh, uh, this is one that I used to use all the time as a uh, as a community police officer. What I would do is phone people up, um, phone people that I that that need arresting, normally on warrants and something like that. I phone them because if I go round there, they won't answer the door. They'll pretend to be out, or if they see me up the road, they'll have you know dodged out of the way. So it, it's very difficult to catch people uh, then and there, or even getting them to come with you. But they will generally answer the phone. So I, uh, they'd pick up the phone. I'd start a conversation, and the essence of that conversation ends up being like this: uh, I'll tell you what. Why don't you? Uh, now that I'm on the phone, why don't you make book an appointment to come in and see me? When you do come and see me, I will arrest you, and we will do all of these <laughs> things. Uh, you know, we'll do all of these things with you. But here's the deal: if you book an appointment with me, um, we I can be prepared for it. You can be prepared for it. You'll be in the police station for maybe a couple of hours. You'll get a nice cup of tea and a laugh and a joke with me, and then it's done. If you don't do that, the alternative is that you'll get six hairy ass coppers turn up at six o'clock one morning. Uh, and they'll do that because, you know, they've just come on shift. They they need they need an arrest. The chances are 
that you'll be home in bed. And you know what's going to happen. That uh, There'll be lots and lots of screaming and shouting. All your neighbours will get to find out about what's going on. And it gets to be a bit of a disaster. Whereas if we book in some time, we can all get it done quietly. In your own time, you can plan for it. Um, so what do you say? Loads of them would come in on that. <laughs> Absolutely loads of them. It used to do my arrest record no end of good. You know, okay. <laughs> and so what you're doing here is you're, you're sort of you're walking their subconscious mind through the different scenarios so that rather than asking them open-ended questions you're filling in all the blanks for them because now that they're following you their imagination is going al along with it they're picturing themselves going through all of these situations and uh you're presenting the subconscious with a positive outcome um, that it can then follow. Yeah, ab absolutely. I um, the the trick with uh, I think a, a lot of this stuff. If I go back to the rapport point, there's sorry. I, um, if you notice, we didn't actually talk about a, a, a real quick, simple technique to be able to grab rapport and move people places very, very quickly. Um, this is this is it, and it, it really is as simple as this. Just walk in assuming that you are best mates. Whoever it is, you just go in there with, with the idea that you're already really good <laughs> friends. Talk to them from that basis, uh, right from the start. Um, this, uh, what it has, the, what that does is, it's a, it's a two-part thing. For, firstly, particularly in policing, uh, most, of you, most of the normal customers for policing aren't expecting you to be friendly. You know, they're, they're not expecting anything like that. So it's kind of like a, a, a bit of a pattern interrupt. It confuses people, and that gives you a little bit of space to move things. Okay? So what I'd do is go in, start a chat. Um, if I was going into someone's house, I would start a chat. I, I'd ask them if I could have a glass of water. But, uh, you know, a long day. You're the last one on my, uh, on my list of people that I've got to see. Would you mind if I just had a glass of water first? All that does is it... It not only breaks down barriers, but it also creates uh, a um, a subconscious, an unconscious version of um, authority. Because effectively, I'm now asking for things, and you're you're responding and doing them for me. Mm. Yeah. So I, I covertly seize control, but not in an authoritative way. That's fascinating. And then it also starts them by when you say pattern interrupt. That means that we as 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 humans sort of have are, are used to following certain um, patterns of behavior. When somebody reaches out their you know arm to sh uh, shake your hand, you shake their hand because that's what you've been uh, trained to do. Yep. But when sort of there's something unexpected happens in that situation that interrupts that pattern, and now your your uh, conscious mind is confused and in in another state. And uh, you're more willing to follow uh, the, the instructions and what, whatever's happening next. Yes. It gets them to relax too, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you're demonstrating relaxation. So if we have, if we have this idea of where a police officer comes to a person and they're really tense and they're really like, I'm fearing for my life about this. Well, the other person is going to pick up on all that body language and they're going to pick up on the authoritative nature of it. And what tends to happen in that situation is that a person is going to engage either fight or flight. 
meaning either they're going to want to fight the officer, which obviously is not a desirable response, but if you watch shows like Cops or, you know, Cops UK or something, we see that it happens all the time. People trying to fight the police when obviously that's not going to work Um, or they run away. And, you know, that's that's also something that happens. But if on the other side you train, you know, and this comes back to the training that you train people to come up and just speak in that um, late night FM DJ voice. Okay, this is, um, you know, what's been described in some negotiation books, that late night FM DJ voice of. So how are you doing today? I'm here today to arrest you. It's like, you know, the, the message or <laughs> what you're saying is different from the, all the, um, the voice tone and the tonality that you're actually using to display the message. Maybe that's why Ben Carson got so much traction in the primaries. Yes. Yeah. Cause he has yeah. that voice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that absolutely, uh, that absolutely makes sense. Um, yeah. Now, can I just, uh, quickly give uh, give you an example that happened to me very early in my career um, with the police. Uh, I'd arrested this juvenile for shoplifting and uh, in compliance with with UK law we can't interview him or do him or process him properly without a parent or a guardian there. So I just jumped into a car um, and drove to his mother's address. Now being very young and ex- inexperienced at the time, it didn't occur to me to check the local information box about what was uh, about the family um, and the house that I was going to. the The problem that was there is that if if I'd looked it up, I would have found that the um, this kid had several brothers and sisters. All of them were uh, in trouble with the police on a routine basis. The mother was um, very anti-police as well, mainly because of the way that her children were were treated. And in about the last 10 times that the police had gone up to that house, um, it always wound up in a fight and everything spilling out into the streets. Um, So the the standing thing from our local information box is that you'd have a transit van with a sergeant and eight all ready for a fight. Uh, coming with you, uh, you, you wouldn't send a police officer, sing, you know, on their own to the house. There would always be that van sat at the top of the road, and you wouldn't go and see them uh, without there being two police officers. But in my naivety, I haven't checked the local box. I don't know what's going on. Uh, all I've got is this kid in uh, in a cell, and I want to process him. And I need his mother to do that. So I've kind of gone up to the door, tra la la, you know. Hi, Mrs. S, we've got your son in. Um, can we just go and have a cup of tea and talk about how we can do the best for him? She's completely thrown by this because she's never met a police officer that's talked to her like that. Um, so I go in, I have a cup of tea, we have a chat. Um, all the, uh, I mean, her kids are a little bit anti and a little bit aggressive, but she shoes them all off because she's never, you know, met a police officer like this. Um, meanwhile, my sergeant has just clocked onto the address that I've gone to and how dangerous this is and he's getting the rest of the shift all packed up with riot gear and you know aluminium baseball bats and everything else and herding them all into a van knowing full well that I'm going to need them you know but 10 minutes later I've come out of the house sat her in the police car 
uh, and you know, driven her to the station where she just literally lays into her son for being so incredibly stupid about um, uh, about shoplifting and how that how he's wasting this this um, this nice police officer's time. It was phenomenal to watch. The entire of my shift are just standing standing outside of this, going, "What the hell's going on?" You know, the reality though is if I'd read the local information box, none of that would have happened because I would have had the same pre-frames in my head and it would have been me and my sergeant at the door and uh, a van up the road and probably winding up in that big fight as well, you know? There's a, a whole lot of stuff that's preconditioned into all of this. Again, if you take um, stops in, in the USA in particular, uh, it's not just the police officers that are terrified. Uh, if you take virtually any ethnic minority, uh, um, well, I, I think this is relatively true in the US and the the UK. Any kind of visible ethnic minority is terrified of the police. Uh, I used to be as a kid, mm -hmm. you know. Um, the difference, I, th I think, between the UK and the US is that in the UK, it would be very, very exceptional cir circumstances to get shot in that encounter. Whereas in the US, I'm, I'm fairly sure there's more encounters than there are shooting, but you wouldn't believe it, you know, watching YouTube, you know. It, it actually saves, it, it does save time and it does save effort um, it, in the long run. You know, I, I mean, I, I had most of the people on, on my areas um, handing themselves into me, uh, you know, whenever, they, whenever they've committed crimes. Uh, I think I, I might have told you about this teenager who was forever stealing cars. But because he'd got into his head that he was always going to get caught, um, after he'd, uh, he was stealing cars to go to London to pick up his stash of drags, uh, drugs and then drive back. Um, but he got into this idea, uh, because he used to steal particular cars and because we knew his habits, invariably one, uh, once we'd seen one of those cars go missing, there'd be a door-stopping job with him to find out whether he'd been there or not. And because he got into the idea that he was always going to get spoken to and talked to about it, I put it into his head that he would always get caught. And once we'd got that, what I told him was exactly the one that I gave, gave you before. Look, your mother's going to be really, really angry with you if at six o'clock one morning all these hairy-ass coppers turn up at your door, turn, turn everything upside down, get the neighbours involved and all this sort of stuff. I know I can't stop you stealing those cars. But you know you're going to get dealt with by them all. Why don't you, once you get, you steal your car to get into London, you steal another car to come back. Once you've done that, give it two days, phone me up, come and hand yourself in. Because then we can do it in your time. Uh, your, uh, you know, we can get your mum involved when she doesn't have to take time off work. Blah, 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 blah. We can, we can do all of these things to, to sort it out in a way that, that is easier for you. I'm not going to shy away from the idea of uh, you're going to get arrested for all of this because you are, but there's ways and means of doing this that will make it a little bit easier on you. And he used to hand himself in routinely to me. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna make it a uh, a kind arrest. We're gonna sit down and have tea and <laughs> and really <laughs> have a good laugh and all of that. 
All right, so that's it for this week's episode, everyone. Thank you to our guest, Rintu Basu, and thanks to all of you at home for tuning into the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, rate us on iTunes, and give us some feedback. So you can do that by visiting our website at subliminallycorrect.com. And if you love the show and want to contribute, visit our Patreon page in the show notes and become a friend of the show. Thanks for listening, and tune in next time.